Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guests today are Julie Exline and Kenneth Pargament. Julie Exline is a professor in the psychology department at Case Western Reserve University, and her primary research is around spiritual struggles, which is what we are talking about today, including a focus on supernatural attributions. I think 10 people in my life over the past year and a half have told me to interview Julie, and uh, I'm so stoked to finally be doing it. And her co-author on this book that we talk about is Kenneth Pargament, and he is a really big name in religion research in the psychological world. If you're not in that world, you know, you can be forgiven for not knowing his name, but he is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Bowling Green State University. He's done massive work on the role of religion and spirituality uh, in people's lives as they cope with stress and trauma. Religious coping uh, is a big term that he is known for, and he's now joining up with Julie to work on this spiritual struggles research. Uh, these guys really know what they're talking about, and oh my goodness, we had an incredible conversation uh, from my perspective. I'm excited for you to hear it, so let's get into it. Doctors, Julie Exline and Ken Pargament, uh, thank you guys so much for joining me. Also, I love 
any chance to use doctors, plural, because it's just a rare treat. You know, you don't get to do it very often. This is a conversation that we have been waiting to have for, I don't know, almost a year. I think I first emailed you, Julie, like 9, 10, 11 months ago, and we waited for your book to come out that you guys wrote together. And so now it's here, and now we're here. The book is called Working with Spiritual Struggles in Psychotherapy, From Research to Practice. There will be a link to that book in the show notes. But really, this conversation is about spiritual struggle, which is an academic research term that, well, tell me, who coined it? I think it was a a case of a simultaneous discovery where Julie and I were working in this arena in our own separate research groups for a number of years and, uh, you know, coming at it from somewhat different perspectives, but in ways that I think we both felt complemented each other. And then I don't know how it happened, but we, we came together and said, hey, why don't we uh, put our heads together and and join teams to uh, take a even broader and deeper look at those times in life when, you know, people are shaken to the core. Yeah. And so I guess I want to start with a definition of spiritual struggle, and then maybe we can contrast it with a couple similar terms just to help people get a sense of what it is that we're, what are you measuring? What are you looking at? So Julie, like, how would you start to define a spiritual struggle? We usually define spiritual struggle by focusing on the idea of tensions or conflicts or sources of strain that people are having around really any facet of religion or spirituality, regardless of whether they're personally religious or spiritual themselves. That could range from doubt to questioning whether there's ultimate meaning in your life to feeling attacked by the devil. So it's a pretty broad umbrella term, basically having to do with this sense of tension or conflict or strain. So uh, an evangelical going through deconstruction which is kind of yeah that that's that's in the that's the world in which this podcast kind of swims. That's one example of a larger umbrella term of spiritual struggles. Yes, I believe so. We don't use the deconstruction term in our branch of psycho religion as much, but I've heard it used a lot in the popular media. So I just hope I'm not misusing it. But my understanding is that a lot of people who are having questions and doubts having to do with the things they've been taught about religion or with faith communities take a kind of a step back and are looking at often with a, a critical eye, looking at the, the challenges that they ran into or some of the real problems that they think came up with their religious life. And if that's consistent with your understanding, I would say our work would certainly overlap with that because as people are coming out of a, a religious experience that was really problematic, maybe even something involving religious abuse, as as you've been interested in with your work, Dan, there's a lot of questions that can come up ranging from, you know, why did God allow this to why did the members of this religious group feed me this messed up stuff (laughs) to wondering what you're going to do with your life in terms of your, your life's meaning or purpose that, you know, you're walking away from a religious structure that could be pretty scary if that was giving you a lot of answers and a lot of support. 
So that could really raise some meaning crises for people. Uh, it clearly our struggles around doubt are often you know, fundamental to these uh, issues with people who are stepping back from, from religion. Also, we have probably my favorite item on our on our interpersonal struggles scale of our measure. I know we'll talk more about the measure later, but it's have you felt angry at organized religion? And a lot of people, whether they're religious or not, report this feeling of being angry at religion itself. So yeah, I think a lot of the things that we are interested in overlap with this, the concept of, of deconstruction as you're talking about it here, even though that's not a term we've used in our own work. Am I right, Ken, to understand that What's being looked at, analyzed, measured, worked with when it comes to spiritual struggle, this is the sort of phenomenological part. This is the experiential aspect. So, for instance, I might be trying to measure exposure to outside events. That's one of the things that my scale looks at. But that's not what spiritual struggles are, an internal, a personal experience. Is that right? I think generally they are. When we go through difficult situations in life, we're impacted psychologically, socially, physically. And I think sometimes the most the powerful ways we're impacted by change and transition and, and events in our lives is the spiritual dimension that we're, we're shaken, as I said, shaken to the core in this. And that experience is, I think we've tried to capture that in, in our measure and in this concept of, of having your most fundamental beliefs and assumptions and, and things that you've counted on in life, what happens when that really is disrupted and you experience tension and strain and conflict around that? So it largely is, I think, a very kind of personal, experiential kind of dimension of life. But as Julie was saying, with the interpersonal side, sometimes it shows up in relationships and you can actually see struggles interpersonally, not just intrapersonally. And if you think of having a relationship with God, as is the case for many, many people in the United States, then it's kind of that interpersonal relationship in that in the vertical sense of you with some kind of higher being. Yeah, that's really good. Julie, do we know how common spiritual struggles are and how do we know? Well, we've had some studies of about 20,000 people in the U.S. And there have been some other studies that have been carried out. Uh, Neil Krauss and his colleagues where Ken was on that project looking at a more representative national sample. Ours was more of a convenient sample of about 20,000 people. But depending how you count it and what types of struggles you're, you're looking at, it seems like over half of people in the United States are going to say that they're that they've had spiritual struggles. On some of our measures, it, it ends up looking like around three quarters of people will say that in like in the last month, I've had some kind of spiritual struggle. I remember when we were looking at anger at God thinking, well, maybe this is a rare phenomenon. We found like two thirds of people in the US reported sometimes being angry at God. And this is probably an understatement because of the stigma around it. So that's a long way of saying, even though, most people aren't going to be like raging at God or in a complete spiritual crisis at any given time. Most people have some kinds of struggles around religion and spirituality at some point. Ken, I don't know if you'd like to elaborate or correct that in any way. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just 
to add to what Julie is saying, we've we've looked at a lot, lots of different groups with this question of whether and to what extent people are struggling spiritually. And we found that they seem to be pretty universal in every group that we've examined. Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, even atheists, we found people report spiritual struggles. One, one study that struck me was a study of elderly people in palliative care who are dying of cancer. And in, in that setting, about 60% of, those, of the patients reported some type of spiritual struggle and about 35%, uh, along with what Julie was saying, reported feeling angry at God or feeling that they were being punished by God by their cancer. So you know, it just seems to be applicable to people from diverse backgrounds and uh, even surprisingly among people who may be uh, atheists. I haven't talked a lot about the prevalence data from my survey. It was also a convenient sample, but it did have 3,200 responses. So a nice, a pretty nice number. And I have an item on there. How often have you experienced a distrust of God? And I've got 67% at least once or twice and 44% at least sometimes. That's that's feeling kind of in the ballpark of of what you guys are finding. Not a ton of overlap in terms of the sort of item wordings, um, but that one that one seems and there's I don't know if I have an anger one or not. I'll have to I'll have to go back and check. But so so quite common though is the is the top line takeaway. Yeah, and and in fact that's one of the biggest things that we always want to try to communicate to people is just how widespread spiritual struggles are and how most people are going to have some of these, that it's a a pretty normal part of life. Because a lot of times when people are having spiritual struggles, especially if they're religious people and they feel like they're not supposed to be struggling or questioning, they can feel very alone and are afraid to disclose these things. So uh, I realize we might talk more about some of this later, but just we want to really make sure that the take home point is very clear for listeners that if you're having any kind of struggles around religion and spirituality, you're in good company. Right. Well, so, so Julie, like, are there church styles or approaches from various attitudes, you know, fill in the nouns, however you want. Are there kind of styles of talking about or responding to, to spiritual struggles that are kind of head in the sand and versus ones that are cognizant of the fact that this is going to be a reality and we're going to have to, if we're going to be a church community that meets people where they actually are, then we're going to need to anticipate this. Like, I don't, I don't know if you, if there are any sort of big takeaways in terms of church approaches or teaching approaches, pastoral approaches, and what you've, what you've seen there. We don't have data from our own work focusing specifically on like at a congregation level, at a religious community level, but it's it's really clear from some of the other work that we've done with uh, just U.S. adults and then some college samples that if people share spiritual struggles, having the person who is listening normalize them and say, you know, I've sometimes felt that way myself, or I hear those types of feelings are really common. 
if people get a message that it's okay to have these struggles and that it's a, a common thing, it really helps people to work through them and to be able to stay engaged with their faith. In the, the study that we had done with, with undergrads about this, when people disclosed that they were angry at God to somebody, the good news is that most of them said that they got one of these kind of affirming, supportive responses, that it was understandable, or, you know, I've sometimes felt that way myself. But about half the people, if I recall correctly, also reported some amount of feeling judged or like it wasn't okay to feel this way. Yeah. You know, they, you should kind of get past this, that it wasn't morally okay. And I think that based on the data that we have there, it was, it was clear in, in our correlations, at least, that people who felt that they got some kind of a disapproving response were more likely to try to suppress their anger at God. They were more likely to stay angry at God. They were more likely to pull away from God and they were more likely to abuse substances. Wow. So uh, again, this is correlational data. We didn't have a fancy longitudinal study, so I don't want to take too much from it, but it's consistent with other work suggesting that feeling secure enables people to feel free to share things. So if you're going to somebody, whether it's a, you know, going to see a pastor or another member of a religious community, confessing to a priest, speaking with your rabbi, whatever it is, if they're able to convey that struggle is normal, that it's acceptable, maybe that it's a hopeful thing that you might grow from experiencing this struggle. I would say that we have enough data to say the odds are that that kind of supportive, normalizing response is going to go a long way. But when people who hear these things, sometimes they get nervous themselves, like, oh, I can't have this person say it's okay to be angry at God, or, you know, this is like, I, I can't deal with this stuff myself. So this person telling me I'm going to kind of shut them down and say, it's not okay. Right. That could actually end up being quite harmful to the person and make them kind of retreat, you know, maybe from you, maybe from the religious community, maybe from God, because it's like the wound that they're having is seen as not okay. And it's like, no, you really shouldn't go there. We really shouldn't talk about this. So openness is key. And if, and if people are willing to share their own struggles too, sometimes that can be helpful. So having, I, I know I've personally found it helpful to hear sermons where people talked about some of their own struggles and kind of were sort of confessing those to the congregation. I just found that so refreshing and it really helps people to not put their leaders up on such a moral pedestal and helps them, helps the leaders to seem more accessible and more like them, that we're all struggling together. Yeah. I mean, I've realized as an adult that this experience that took me so by surprise in youth group when I was, when I was in high school, our youth pastor had like her best friend had just been like doubting for a couple years, like really hard and it was unresolved and she was still open to resuming a life of faith. And our youth pastor had her come in and talk about it very candidly. And I remember thinking, what the hell is going on here? This is what we're hearing in youth group, but, but like rec being open to it, you know? And like, I think that that did a ton to normalize doubt and different seasons. And, you know, Julie, you're kind of getting at what I think is often behind these kind of dismissals, which is the hearer of the doubt is anxious 
when they hear the doubt. And so they want to reduce their own anxiety. And so they will dismiss the person's experience or their concerns. And they might use religious language because that's the most powerful language to use and makes them feel the least amount of cognitive dissonance about dismissing this human being in front of them. And I think it was just so, I'm so grateful that she brought her friend. And I think she came back and talked like a year later and gave us an update. It was like, it was like a part of our conversation. Oh yeah, this woman who's like super doubting, you know, but like still talks to us. It was, I, now I look back and I think that was quite powerful. Along those lines, we at Bowling Green several years ago developed a, uh, a program for spiritual strugglers in college called Winding Road. Basically, uh, uh, you know, a short program, about eight weeks, the students come together in groups and uh, share their struggles with each other um, and talk about how they developed the anxiety and frustrations they have with the struggles and then ways they may want to kind of move forward in their lives with those struggles. And what we found, first of all, in soliciting students who would be willing to be in the group was there, we had no shortage of potentially interested students. (laughs) I bet. Yeah. They were were describing a lot of distress um, when we gave them mental health measures. They are really feeling a lot of pain associated with their struggles. And the program itself, even though it was short term, it was really remarkably successful in, in helping students feel as though they're now, that struggles are a natural, normal part of life rather than something that they would be ashamed of or stigmatized and, and being able to live with the struggles and even using the struggles as kind of a launching pad for growth. And, and we found college and the, you know late adolescence, early adulthood is a time when struggles are, are very commonplace and to be able to find some support and some guidance in that I think is a wonderful gift that they can that they can receive so you know I keep thinking Ken about that palliative care study and the 60 percent people in that study experiencing spiritual struggles and I think that I want to relate this to what you were saying Julie of this this, this anxiety and this discomfort that we have with acknowledging these struggles sometimes. And I think, I don't, I want to know if either of you, res, actually either of you resonate with this. My experience of hearing about older kind of deathbed Christians growing up was pretty much all the time, these people have faith Like, this is one of the reasons to be a faithful Christian is that on your deathbed, you won't have struggles, you won't have doubts, you won't be the foxhole Christian, the the turncoat atheist or whatever, you know, at the last, no, no, uh, no atheists and foxholes, right? You, you won't, you won't have that. You will face your death with equanimity. And it frankly reminds me of like military propaganda through the ages, of like good soldiers aren't afraid to die for the cause of their likely corrupt king you know like it's kind of it's kind of dark and messy if you peer behind it and honestly it's kind of nice for me to hear that 60% of people in palliative care are having spiritual struggles cuz i think well how how am i going to just stop having them just cuz i'm dying aren't i going to have them even more when i'm dying because 
there is some fundamental uncertainty to this whole life of faith. There is a leap of faith. It's not certain, you know. So I don't know if either of you, does that resonate with you? What I'm describing is that, did I have a unique experience or does that seem pretty common? I think a lot of times there's this expectation that people who are getting close to death or even sometimes people who are suffering from serious illnesses that they're supposed to be, in order to be a good coper, it means being sort of stoic. And I agree with you. It's very much a kind of a, a military sort of metaphor where it's like, I, I have to tough this out. And even in my, you know, in terms of my spiritual life, let's say, so there's this kind of military thing, but then there's also, as I think about the type of church I was raised in, there was definitely a, a focus on, you know, that you're saved. So you're going to go be with, with Jesus. There's nothing to be afraid of. So it's kind of, there's kind of an expectation that if you are really trusting God, that you'll be at peace. Yes. So it's almost, it could almost be seen as like a sin to, to be bummed out or to be struggling because you're supposed to be on the one hand, kind of a good soldier, but also if you believe Jesus and his promises, you should have complete peace now. Now I've never heard anybody come out and say it as directly as I said it there. I mean, this is just kind of a, but it was kind of a subtext I would say. And I, I, it's something I hadn't really thought about before. I'm I'm glad that you raised that. So Ken, we heard a bit from each of you about, you know, in passing, what can cause these spiritual struggles. But I'm wondering if you can think of maybe anything that hasn't been addressed to round out that picture of where, what tends to cause these spiritual struggles. Well, I think they, they are kind of shaped by kind of out of the whole fabric of life. Uh, one clear precipitant to struggles are major life events, major life crises. I mean, if you take a look at COVID right now, it's, a, I think, a, a very present example of an event that can touch us deeply along many levels, really fundamental anxieties about our, our lives, our life path, the purposes we're trying to pursue, the, the things that are we hold most dear to us, our ability to control and master our own lives, all of these kinds of fundamental existential issues, our relationships, intimacy, it's touched and shaken by by COVID. And so not surprisingly, we should find that many people are struggling, not only, again, psychologically and socially and physically, but socially. And we find that events, you know, ranging from divorce to war to, to medical illness, they all increase the likelihood of, of spiritual struggle. That's one factor. And there are other factors, too. Certain personality factors increase the likelihood of struggles. People who may be more generally anxious, more uh, emotionally sensitive and fragile, they're also more likely to encounter spiritual struggles. And there are times of life when struggles are more likely, as I mentioned, late adolescence. So there's a whole kind of set of factors that increase the likelihood of spiritual struggles. And one of the things that's hard about predicting them, just to build on what Ken said, is that there are so many different types of struggles. So the the predictors of feeling attacked by the devil are probably going to look pretty different from the predictors of an ultimate meaning struggle. So right. it's, it's a little bit hard to make general statements about the predictors of struggle because struggle is such a, 
a huge category. You know, religious and spiritual struggles could be framed almost like workplace struggles. Well, what kind of struggle are you talking? You know, it's it's a it's a broad category. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand that these struggles can sometimes lead to growth. I, I imagine that means spiritual growth, but I also imagine it means just maturity, sort of character growth, and that sometimes they don't lead to growth. They can lead to decline, or I'm not sure what the opposite word is for for growth. Do you have a sense of like what's going on, like why it might lead to growth and my, why it might not lead to growth? Well, just to kind of provide a little more background about that, when, when you look at the, the studies on the, the links between struggles and mental health and, and well-being, the most consistent finding is that struggles are tied to greater distress, which may not be altogether surprising, given that kind of distress is built into the way we define struggles. Right. But we're not just talking about uh, feeling a little bit down or low. Struggles can also be tied to more serious kinds of outcomes, more serious mental illness, more serious physical illness, even greater likelihood of dying. Changes in your bio- biomarkers can decline as a result of struggles. And that's, that's a pretty consistent finding. When we first got these results, and I, I, I know for myself, I looked at them and I was a little surprised at just how robust the findings were because I'd thought that as a clinical psychologist and a therapist, I've, I tell people that their struggles are not only painful, but they're opportunities for growth. Right. But when we look at the links between struggles and growth, they were not nearly as consistent as the ties between struggles and trouble. So that kind of notion that, you know, you grow through your pain and that struggles are going to build character, it wasn't showing up as clearly in the research. A few studies do show that at least some people are growing or reporting growing through struggles, but it's not kind of an inevitable. And the take-home point that we took from that and that we make in the book is that you really don't want to sentimentalize struggles. Uh, assume that you know people will inevitably feel better and grow and transform their lives. That we think can happen, but probably not without some some help, some hard work, and some time, because the growth that may emerge from struggles may not occur overnight. It may take weeks, months, even years, which all of that leads to the question you're raising, Dan, which is, okay, what determines the trajectory? Some people may decline and even become broken through their struggles, but other people may grow. And some people experience both. They have times of it's kind of like um, one step forward, two steps back. They both grow and decline over time. But what determines that important trajectory you know, following this, this pivotal time in life? And we've been really interested in that question and just beginning to get some, I think, some answers to it. So that's a little background to set the stage for what you were asking, which, Dan, that was actually a very sophisticated question. So, well, maybe it was sophisticated because I skipped some stuff, (laughs) (laughs) therefore required a longer answer. There's a bunch in that answer that I'm intrigued by. I'm going to stick to two. One is about 
maybe struggles are a necessary but not sufficient condition for a kind of wisdom and maturity. And then the other is about whether you think spiritual struggles, given those correlational findings, should we should try to avoid it for people. I'll, I'll motivate it a little bit and then whoever wants to answer. So I guess what I'm thinking is like, I can't think of any people that I would consider truly wise or like quite holy, the kind of people that I would really want to emulate, hold up as an exemplar that have not suffered and struggled. Now that doesn't mean, so it may be struggle is a necessary condition for sort of human greatness, true human flourishing, but it's not sufficient. It's not going to get you there just because you struggled. But if you haven't struggled, you're probably never going to make it to that top tier, we might say. Is there any evidence to support that or am I going completely anecdotally out of my own experience? Part of the problem is that it's hard to get at, it's hard to measure what growth is. And it's also hard to measure wisdom and maturity. So there's some of these things that intuitively, you know, I would very much agree with, with what you're saying. And I think you can even look at things like developmental psychology, you know, that when we have, you know, a child is, is growing, uh, you've got information, new information coming in that can either be assimilated. I think this is Piaget. I'm not developmental. It can either be assimilated into the structures that you have, or else you have to accommodate it by changing your mental structures to fit in this new information or to learn how to do this new thing. So I think that people, as we encounter problems in life of whatever kind, you have to cultivate better problem solving skills in that area. And you learn new things. You might question things that you had taken for granted. You might seek out resources that you wouldn't otherwise have had to seek out. You might really do some introspection about your your values or regrets from your past or what your goals are. Some of these really painful experiences could get people to do this kind of inner reflection, problem solving, connection, you know, cultivating new skills that seem like they could certainly lead to what, you know, what most people would consider growth or maturity. So I think that's a very reasonable thing to expect. It's it's very hard to capture some of these things in what we're often having to do in in psych, especially us non-developmental people, we're often not able to do the kinds of long-term longitudinal studies that would help to clarify some of these things. They're very expensive and very difficult to do. And then there's the challenge of measuring growth, which is a whole controversial topic of its own and measuring wisdom. Uh, Measuring wisdom. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start because even if you could come up with like the, the type of survey items, it's like the kind of stuff that really wise people know, everyone kind of knows it. Like you would answer it right on a survey. But that doesn't mean that you would do it, <laughs> right? Like you would say something like, yeah, every person among us is equally valued and has to be given equal attention. I would get five out of five, I would rate that true. And then when I go out to a party, I will go talk to the more famous person there because I don't actually live like everybody is, you know, like, so how would you, you can't, it's the empirical, 
empirical measurement of wisdom is perhaps forever elusive, certainly incredibly difficult to pin down. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to even implicitly critique. There are people out there who have tried to make measures of wisdom and have done good work in that area. So I don't in any way want to, Hmm. you know, denigrate what they've done. It's not my area and we haven't been able to use those measures in our work, but it is all the self-report stuff that we're looking at is tricky for these reasons. But some of these concepts have been especially hard to tap, but it's not to say that it's impossible. So I don't want to get too pessimistic in in talking about this, but I would intuitively agree with the idea that as we have struggles, we have to develop, cultivate these skills, relationships, resources, ultimately seems like it could be beneficial to people. Very hard to get at that, a survey that's being given at one moment in time, a snapshot of a person's life at that time. It's very hard to get at this level of richness, unfortunately. Well, I just add to that, that it is a difficult, challenging kind of task, but at the same time, I think it's uh, maybe one of the most vital tasks in understanding people and life. That it's, it's a task that I think we're all living our lives trying to sort it out. And, and as a matter of fact, the great religions of the world, I think in some ways they're all about trying to answer that question of how do you move from struggle to some growth and transformation. You know, the the major religious traditions have these narratives of religious figures from Moses to Jesus to Buddha to Muhammad of, of people who experience profound struggles in their lives and find ways to then go through a transformation that's uh, certainly life-changing and, and, you know, we know now world-changing. And I think it's the same thing in great literature of of, uh, a lot of the greatest stories from Dostoevsky to, uh, you know, more modern writers are all struggling with helping us understand how people can go through all these kinds of struggles and come to terms with them in ways that can be transformational in life. So, you know, psychologists and researchers, we're, we're kind of just beginning to answer, try to answer that question of what, what determines the, the direction of your life when you're going through a struggle and how can we move towards, towards a kind of growth and an enriched life as opposed to decline? Uh, you know, it's one of the most vital questions that we have just in terms of understanding ourselves, but also helping people who are suffering. And I think in terms of what you were saying, Ken, that we don't know exactly the things that are going to help people get to growth, but I do think based on some of the work that we've done and that other people have done, there are some ideas at least that we could could offer, which might be things like, first of all, not, av- not avoiding these feelings of struggle as, as unacceptable. We had a paper, uh, Carmen Omikdorsky was the first author showing that there's this thing called experiential avoidance, which is basically where you see something as being unacceptable or like, I don't want to go there. And people who engaged in more of that in response to a spiritual struggle were definitely not doing as well in terms of mental health. So being able to look at the struggle, accept that you're having a struggle rather than pushing it away seems important. I think anything that you can do to positively frame the struggle, and if you're religious, try to use religious coping, positive religious coping methods like trying to appraise it as an opportunity for spiritual growth, trying to collaborate with with God about it, trying to think of how this might actually be a 
some kind of blessing or opportunity, maybe seeking out religious support. And in some of our work too, we we found that there's this idea uh, that a lot of people out there might've heard of is this idea of, well, I do my part and God does God's part. And, and we did a study where we found that people who felt like they were engaging in religious coping themselves, but also felt like God was helping them cope with the struggle. This idea that God was helping them when they weren't having to do it all themselves was also comforting. So I think this combination of trying to like accept that you're having the feelings, see it as being totally acceptable and normal to have them, engage your own religion or spirituality, whatever positive ways you know, look at it as an opportunity for growth and maybe seek out some resources or connection are all things that could help to encourage somebody in that direction of growth. But you don't want to jump into all of that stuff so fast that you don't allow yourself to to feel the feelings that you're either happening inside you. But one thing we've, Ken and I have talked about is, and, and Ken can probably say this better than I can, but we don't want to give the message that growth is expected or that people should be trying to grow right away quickly because that can get to be a process of minimizing a struggle. You know, oh, I'm okay. This terrible thing just happened to me. You know, my parent just died, you know, a month ago and I'm having a terrible time. Well, but I would, I need to grow from this. It, it could actually become another source of pressure right. that people could put on themselves. And I think that's where being able to accept that, you know, I am struggling with this and to be okay, kind of sitting with that, exploring that. Why am I struggling? What's going on? Maybe having even an empty chair conversation where you picture God or, you know, member of your religious community or something sitting there with you, just exploring your feelings and letting yourself feel what you're feeling is good because, you know, there can be this same stoic type tendency or the good you know, in Christian circles, the good Christian Christian tendency to feel like, well, I just got to put a positive face on this and I've just got to talk to God about it. And I've just got to have faith and, you know, trust that this is all going to work out for good. And sometimes those things help, but sometimes, especially if you're a person who tends to kind of compartmentalize things and push away unpleasant feelings anyway, you might do that and not experience what you would benefit from experiencing. Uh, yeah. There's a, a really great line of work on this concept called spiritual bypass. Uh, I believe that Jesse Fox uh, is the initiator of this work. This idea that sometimes people will, when they're going through something that could be seen as a struggle, they'll kind of spiritualize it. and Or, or, or even if it's just a life struggle, like I'm depressed, they'll spiritualize it and say, this is an opportunity for spiritual growth, or I'm supposed to be you know, doing all these good things and kind of wrap all this religious or spiritual language around it. But then they're really kind of minimizing the struggle. They're really not going there because they're just trying to be all spiritual. And that can end up being kind of a way of not giving ourselves a voice in the situation. And I think that can lead to some issues. So just let yourself go there. And I think that's a good thing. Just another example of, of what Julie is talking about from on the cover of our book, we were going back and forth with the publisher about the best design. And ultimately, we, we decided on a, a, a picture of Kintsugi art as a good visual for what talking about with struggle, where Kintsugi is a Japanese art form in which a piece of ceramic is shattered and it's put together I see you're shaking your head, Dan. Sounds like you know it. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, it's put together with gold or silver filigree, 
And the resulting peace is in its way because you can see the brokenness is part of the wholeness. The brokenness and the wholeness are all integrated. And the notion that we grow through brokenness is a way of saying that, and that brokenness is visible and it's not to be denied, but that in working with the bits and pieces of our lives to become more whole, we can create works of art. And in this case, the work of art is ourselves. We become works of art as we move from brokenness to greater wholeness in our lives. And we thought that's a really nice metaphor for what might be spiritual struggles at their best. You experience them, understand them, appreciate them, and then try to work with them to move towards greater wholeness in in our own life projects. I love that. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. Patrons get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only an awesome online community. Facebook is not, you know, maybe the best uh, service to be supporting or whatever, but it is a very functional uh, clearinghouse meeting place uh, for hundreds of listeners of this show. So you get access to that as a patron. You also get at least two exclusive episodes per month. Most recently, I talked with my friend Lindsay Stranigan about her story of moving from evangelicalism in which she was raised to eventually finding a home in the Episcopal Church and a particular church she loves in Portland. Um, And coming up this month, we've got another uh, episode uh, going through the Gospels with Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible as well as, I believe, another Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and Josh Gilbert, our editor and producer. So if you're interested, patreon.com slash Dan and back to the episode. I think it's time to talk about the six types of spiritual struggle that you guys outline. So we'll just go A, B here. Ken... Tell us about this first type, divine spiritual struggle. Well, that may be one of the core spiritual struggles, what most people may think about when they think about spiritual struggles, which is having some kind of tension or conflict with a higher power, God, Jesus, whoever may be that transcendent figure in your life. And, you know, we've identified subtypes of divine struggle, too. I mean, we can talk about Julie mentioned anger towards God and the anger towards the God who may have disappointed us or let us down from what we expected, feeling punished by God, feeling that God is punishing us for our own transgressions or infractions, uh, or sometimes maybe without any good reason at all, just because God's malicious. And then we have feeling abandoned by God, feeling that God's just not there for us. We pray to God, we look for God's support and And in response, we just feel this vacuum, this sense of emptiness. And, you know, these these kinds of struggles, again, they're not unusual and they're not limited to people who aren't particularly religious. Uh, Mother Teresa, in her biography, describes some incredibly painful descriptions of the struggles she felt when she was not able to sense or feel 
God's presence in her life. And, and her description of it is just incredibly touching. And we can find other people who are kind of religious exemplars who describe their own periods of religious absence or what one researcher in, in Switzerland calls religious spiritual dryness, along with uh, anger towards God and punishment by God. And this is quite distressing. And we find that that feeling of tension and conflict with God is, is tied to a number of, uh, you know, markers of distress, of depression and anxiety and, and, and some decline in mental health over time. Yeah, this is one that I, I'm really interested to chat with you guys about in some more depth. I have a subscale on my spiritual harm and abuse scale that is, I titled it Harmful God Image. And there are three survey items that load on that scale. And they are feeling betrayed by God, feeling as if God harmed me directly, and distrust of God. And so a lot of overlap here between that subscale and and your guys' divine struggle. And what I have found so psychologically interesting about that idea of basically God, basically God as villain, whether permanent or temporary, I have been thinking of that as interesting because it sort of goes against what a classical theism would say about God and what most Christian theologies would sort of concretely claim about God, that God is always loving. God cannot betray. God is only to be trusted. God can never harm you. Not really. You might think of it as harm. You know, that God is the hero God, by definition in basically all Christianities. That's how I've tended to think about why I find the harmful God image item or, or you know, subscale interesting. I wonder what you guys think about that. I like the idea of the, the way you're framing it as God as hero. That's a, that's a cool way to, to think about it. But I, I do think that a lot of people have this sense of mistrust about God's intentions. You know, does, is God really all good and all loving. And a lot of times, even if people, what you'll see is that people will endorse just kind of a, maybe the, what they were taught kind of belief that of course God is loving. Yeah. And of course God is not cruel and God's not particularly distant, but at a gut level, a lot of people do worry about this. And I mean, I think the items that you're talking about are, are very similar, Dan, to the, the types are divine struggle items. They would probably all, you know, if we were, had them in a measure, they would all probably load you know, together right. pretty, pretty easily. And I, I think there's often this sense that God is kind and loving, but there are some exceptions. Sometimes, you know, you read in religious texts, you know, about how God sometimes would order people to go out and throw stones at people or, you know, kill people with a sword. And there's this, all this stuff about hell in the Christian Bible. And there's some pretty, there's some pretty scary stuff. So you combine those genuinely disturbing, scary teachings for a lot of people with religious aggression that you might see, you know, coming, you know, religious 
prejudices and religious wars. You know, people will talk about things like the Crusades and, and all the harmful things that are done in God's name. You'll look at the the harms that could be caused by people seen as representatives of God, like religious leaders who are abusive toward people, uh, sexually, verbally, or physically, you, you name it. Right. And then what if, if your own relationship with your own parents wasn't a hundred percent perfect, which, you know, whose is the baggage from the parents tends to get transferred onto God as well. So there's so many opportunities for even if, if somebody's been taught that God's all loving to have those things come in and then people just get into their own kind of internal theodicies, like, you know, well, if God caused me to get cancer and God's ways are always right. And there's, it's supposed to be just, I must've somehow deserved this and be being punished or else hmm, maybe God, even if I'm not being punished, maybe God just really doesn't care about me. Hmm. Or, or maybe God actually is kind of a jerk. You know, people, people yeah. just really struggle. It's like you're playing a Rubik's cube, trying to, to get these answers for how a loving God can allow suffering and evil. And we certainly, of course, aren't coming in and claiming to answer those age old questions. But... Rubik's cube or a magic eight ball. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no, I think that that's totally right. And I, I think that I'm maybe guilty of doing a little bit of uh, God of the philosophers here because of maybe my own personality, like my own bent as a guy who chose to get a philosophy undergrad and, you know, likes theology and is very abstract in my thinking, you know, maybe for me, I would just never distrust God, feel God harm me. I would just like stop believing in God. Like where I would go was like, oh, I guess I was wrong about God existing. I wouldn't go to like, but then I think, well, most of human history People have a lot less clean understandings of the divine, of God or gods. Uh, I mean, thinking about certainly sort of like pre-Christian religion, early religious movements, uh, the whims of gods and demigods. I think of, you know, pagan theologies, polytheism, you know, all like we're certainly wired as humans to like. Imagine that there is a really powerful being that may or may not be for us. That's actually more the norm. And my God of the philosophers, the the perfections, of course, God would never harm. That's like fairly new on the scene and happens to just be my personality, I wonder. Yeah, in polytheism, you'd have you could have options. In fact, we we did a, a study of Hindu college students in India a few years ago, showing that uh, some people said that they would switch gods like allegiances you know if my, if one god isn't coming through i can switch to another one wow and just in conversations with people it seems like uh, a lot of christians can be this way with with the trinity and for people who are jewish you know this has to be kind of offensive because what christians tend to do is they say well the old testament god is the mean one right you know jesus is nice and i can and i can have the holy spirit if i'm trying to be like spiritual but a lot of times the god of the old testament is the one who gets seen as the, the mean one. And then Jesus right. kind of corrected things, which, which really creates a pickle. If you think about what the Trinity is actually supposed to be right. and, and how, how are people who are going with the Hebrew Bible as their, their primary sacred text supposed to deal with that. It's like, well, we don't get Jesus. So, so how are we supposed to deal with this caricature you're putting on about our, you know, our, the God is, is portrayed in our scriptures. Right. Right. But I think, 
I've, I've enjoyed this idea of Christians as functional polytheists that I've, I, I haven't studied it, but I've, I've seen it a lot and I would like to study it. I mean, I think too, in like Catholic and Orthodox traditions, you've got Mary, you've also got saints and patron saints. So you, you know, it's not technically polytheism and no one's going to, no one's going to tell you you're being a heretic, but functionally you could be like, well, I'm just more of a Mary guy. You know, you can, or you can sort of switch allegiances. You can get a different candle and focus more on a different saint. And it's, you know, you're not, you're not saying, oh, Jesus isn't God anymore, but you're, th- that sort of spiritual flexibility, maybe you would find that same thing you found with the Hindu college students. I'm yeah. going to move, I'm going to move us along time-wise. I want to make sure we get through all six of these. So Ken, can you tell us about demonic spiritual struggle? Well, I'm going to turn this one over to Julie since uh, she's devoted a lot of time and energy into uh, studying d- the demonic struggles and struggles with uh, evil, evil uh, forces. Okay. So demonic struggles, we're, we're actually just starting to study, uh, but we've been thinking about them a lot over the last few years, and we have we have some data. So these are demonic struggles tend to be the ones that correlate really highly with how religious you are, especially here in the United States. So people who are more devout, more conservative Christians tend to believe more in the devil and see the devil as being much more active in the world. So a lot of the beliefs about the devil attacking are ones that are doctrinally sensible within that context. And then in a lot of other a lot of other people who are very religious or spiritual who don't hold these strong beliefs in the devil aren't going to have these. But a lot of people feel like events in their lives that are negative can be attributed to the devil's actions. So whether you're being tempted or tormented in some way, maybe being attacked, tempted tends to be, I think, the one that people endorse the most. Also, people will see the devil operating through other people. Now, this is something we're getting really interested in now in our research on political polarization and the way that people look at uh, religious outgroups. And some others have done uh, work in this area as well. Annette Mahoney and, and Ken and their students have done some really great work on what they call demonization, which it's you know taking situations that that might involve other people sometimes as well and and making a demonic explanation for it right and in their work and in some of the newer stuff that we're starting to look at as well we are finding that this idea of seeing the devil as being involved through other people is really problematic socially you know you're going to be much more Uh, like imagine (laughs) much well and you know you think about things going on in our culture now with beliefs about uh, QAnon, you know, believing right. that people on the left are Satan worshiping pedophiles, drinking the blood of babies, you know, right. This, these types of beliefs are going to make other people seem like they are being influenced by the devil, maybe even following the devil. Maybe they're even evil themselves. And it's not much of a step from that to seeing them as being, you know, people that deserve our hatred. <laughs> contempt, right. maybe even aggression, maybe even annihilation. So a very, it's a very dangerous line of reasoning to go down to say that people who disagree with me are being influenced by the devil. But, but more personally, 
people who are struggling with feeling like the devil is bothering them. Sometimes there are people who are just having moral struggles. You know, I'm trying to do what's right. And you can you know, kind of picture like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on another. Right. So a, a lot of times this sense of being tempted, attacked, it can be associated with things like anxiety and depression. But for some people, it's also just kind of a normal part of religious life. And some of the ideas we're starting to look at now are things like, are some people really energized by this idea of being in a spiritual battle? You know, they like, yeah. you know, this, there's this whole militarization that certainly exists in particularly uh, conservative evangelical theology in the U S this idea that you're, you know, you're one of God's warriors. So this idea of being in this fight against evil, we believe can be energizing for some people. And this idea of, you know, being on the side of good against evil could actually be something that could give people some sense of, meaning or purpose. And it could make life seem kind of exciting, you know, to be part of this this epic battle. I often think that that explains some of why older people are always into the end times. And I don't, that's kind of anecdotal. I don't know that I could, I don't know that there's research to prove that that is true, that older folks get into it. But like, if you're going to die soon, soon soon-ish, and maybe Armageddon is going to happen and you get to witness that you already got to live your life. You got to see your grandkids, whatever. But now you get to see the Antichrist rise or, you know, like there is that is like exciting. It is very different than like making sure you take your supplements, you know, and like the kind of humdrum of of a, you know, a older person's daily routine. Right. To be like. No, but we're about to see the real shit go down. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That's, again, anecdotal, personal sense I've had. Yeah, it could seem like you're part of this epic story. uh, And that can be exciting and energizing, we think. But we're just getting into that. Cool. Um, Yeah, interesting. But if if people feel like the devil is harassing them and and they're feeling weak, like, I, like, if you're feeling kind of beaten down by the devil, like the devil's stronger than you and you don't have the resources to fight, you're probably going to be very anxious yeah. and, and scared of running around being scared of the devil everywhere. So a lot of it depends, you know, are you sure that you feel like you're on the good side here and do you have the resources to fight the devil? These are some of the things we're just starting to look into now. My gosh, I cannot wait to read your guys's book, man. I'm, I'm ordering it as soon as we're done here. Okay, moving on just because of time. Ken, tell us about doubt. What do we need to know about doubt that we don't already intuit as a type of spiritual struggle? Working in this area, we often create the uh, kind of dichotomy of belief versus unbelief. So you believe in God versus you don't believe in God. You believe in life after death or you don't believe in life after death. You know, these fundamental religious kinds of issues. And And I think in that process... As with all the struggles, I think the struggles are kind of in between phenomena. Yeah. We write later in the book that they're kind of hidden in the crevices of human experience. And doubt's a good example of it because doubt is an in between phenomena. It's in between belief and unbelief. It's not that you don't believe in God, it's not that you believe in God. It's that you're in this in between place of being uncertain and questioning. And the same thing with life after death. You don't believe in life after death, but you don't not believe in it. You waver and you're uncertain and you're confused. And so it leaves you in this this place that can be really quite disturbing. 
not being able to put both feet down. And so you're always kind of on one foot or the other. And again, it can be disorienting and confusing if you have enough of these fundamental questions and doubts about, again, we're talking about core beliefs. We're talking about fundamental beliefs that ground us, that orient us. And when we're not sure about them or we're uncertain, that can be very disturbing. Um, and I give the example in the book of a case. It's a composite example of someone that I've, I've worked with that coming from different, different cases of people that I've worked with. But a guy who's just not sure whether he buys into the fundamental precepts of Islam. So mm. he's coming to counseling because he's just not sure. And raising the questions is in itself very disturbing for him. And he's been told that he just needs to accept. And yet he has these questions and he doesn't have a place to go with the questions in his own religious world. He can't ask his family, but they haven't been receptive. His imam tells him he just needs to read the Quran, you know, more regularly and pray more regularly. So he feels like he doesn't have any place to go with it. And this is one of the areas, I think, where psychology and psychotherapists and chaplains and pastors can do wonderful service if they're willing to be accepting and listening to people who are having questions and doubts and not trying to squash them, but being receptive to them and accepting them as, hey, this is part of life. We have questions and doubts. I, I should just quickly add that in my own clinical work, I, I've seen a good number of pastors and priests and rabbis, and they come with spiritual struggles. And they come to me, and I'm a Jewish psychologist, in part because they don't feel particularly safe in being able to express their doubts within their own religious communities. So they come to an outsider because I, I'm, I'm fine with, you know, psychology is about helping people question and, and doubt and, and to listen to and accept that as a natural part of life. So helping people with doubts, I think, and fundamental doubts, I think, is a core kind of psychotherapy task. We're, we're trying to elevate or move the struggles with doubt from what's implicit in many of the problems people bring into counseling and psychological problems, depression, anxiety, whatever, something that's been implicit, lying in the crevices to explicit. This is part of life too. And then being able to talk about it. I'll tell you what I'm struggling with, Ken, only having 15 more minutes to talk about this with you guys. <laughs> You're just yeah. like, you just tapped into the deepest vein of my interest in this topic as I trained to become a psychologist myself and uh, am so drawn to the existential, various existential approaches and, and oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to have to just restrain myself. But th I love that idea of doubt being, it's a, it's a liminal space. It's, it's in between one and the other. I wish that I, and I hope that maybe someday I can stop living the entirety of my life in a state of doubt about, for instance, an afterlife. But thus far, I haven't been able to plant both feet. I, I guess I don't fundamentally know that we could get that, uh, the kind of evidence we would need to plant our feet on that particular issue. But for instance, something like the universe, there is a real force for wholeness, love, joy, and healing that humans have access to, call that God. 
that I actually like, that's one that I think I do have enough evidence for that. I have enough evidence that either that's true or it's like all so bullshit that it doesn't matter that that's not true. You know, basically like you might as well live as if it's true. That one's, I can maybe, I can imagine getting both feet down. Afterlife's harder for me. But this is not a personal audio diary of my own spiritual struggles. This is an co- interview conversation. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to read this f- book. Okay, Julie, let's talk about, and yeah, we swear sometimes on this podcast. It's how listeners know that I really mean something is when I swear. Julie, tell us about Ultimate Meaning. Speaking of this kind of existential, therapeutic, bringing up the big questions and sitting with them, what are Ultimate Meaning spiritual struggles? So ultimate meaning struggles come up when people are struggling with trying to seek out or or find a sense, like a deeper sense of meaning or purpose in their lives, or when they maybe are concerned that there is a lack of meaning. So you could either be trying to find it and maybe being, you know, questioning whether there's a deeper meaning to your life, maybe what you're your purpose is, or for religious people, maybe what your calling is, or coming to the conclusion that life is, is, or at least your life is, is not very meaningful. Yeah. So in a nutshell, that's what those struggles are about. Ken, just because you were kind of dancing around this ground a minute ago, let me just give you a few minutes to riff on this in the context of, of therapy. Cause I'm just so interested in, when people bring these kinds of questions into a therapeutic context. It's funny, Julie and I were just talking about this yesterday. The ultimate meaning struggles, many of the other struggles I think are are kind of explicitly religious in character, struggles with God, um, struggles over fundamental religious precepts. But struggles of ultimate meaning can show up among people who are atheists, among people who are not without any using any explicit religious language whatsoever. They can be hidden in depression and anxiety, but I think depression is where they're, they're often found of people who are struggling to find some kind of deeper purpose in their lives. And, and the, their, their, that struggle is revealing itself through symptoms of depression. But if one of the, I think, wonderful practical implications of this work is that in therapy, you can do you can give a wonderful gift to the people we work with if we, first of all, help them identify the struggle, name it, name the struggle that's implicit in the depression, and then once it's named, try to help people grapple with the struggle explicitly and ask them, you know, try to help them find a deeper source of meaning and look for what that may be, and it may take the form of some kind of explicit religious objective, like knowing God or being closer to the Lord, but it may also take other forms that aren't explicitly religious. So finding your own divine spark, wherever that may take you, whatever helps you feel a sense of transcendent connection, be it uh, nature, music, uh, loving relationships, just bringing kindness to the world, they all can be imbued with a deeper spiritual and sacred value and meaning. And I think therapists can do a wonderful service to clients by helping them identify, first of all, the, the struggle of ultimate meaning and then help them kind of find that that spark within them, that sacred spark and blow on it. 
fan the flames of that spark. So and I, I was mentioning to Julie yesterday, this is one of the areas where if you do this, sometimes it creates incredible transformation in people's lives because they're moving from a life of meaninglessness to a life that's full of meaning and that's rich. So again, another in-between phenomena, in-between meaninglessness and meaningfulness are the struggles of meaning. And if we identify them and then help people blow on the spark to find greater meaning, then do no greater, I think no greater uh, uh, service. There's a scene in a movie that I love called Big Night, where this Italian character is describing food that he had like in his home town. And he says to the other character, you eat it and then you have to die because that's how good it is. And Ken, you're putting me there right now. I have to move us on. I don't want to. I want to stay here for hours, but right, the, the right. clock. So be feel encouraged by that. But the clock demands that we move on because we've got two more to talk about. So, Julie, let's get you back on, Mike, here. Moral spiritual struggles. What are moral spiritual struggles like? So these are struggles, too, that don't have to be seen as explicitly religious or spiritual. But all of us have times where we're struggling, trying to either discern what's the right thing to do in a situation or the types that we've studied more, having trying to feeling like you're wrestling to try to follow your beliefs and principles to do the right thing or dealing with the aftermath when you feel like you've failed in some way. So am I going to beat myself up? Am I going to forgive myself? Am I going to be able to you know, work past this in a positive way or not? But all of us are struggling with issues of right and wrong and what we're supposed to do in daily life. So that's the, the nutshell view of the moral struggles. I'm trying to be really short on some of these because I'm trying to give a short, I'm trying to give a short, a short description and moral struggles are huge. I mean, morals, right. we have moral decisions in every part of life. Let me throw out one that's like, feels like it might cross into divine and moral. So I'm, someone alerts me or I'm reading through the old Testament and I see the Canaanite conquest passages and I go, What? God would command all these soldiers to kill women and children. And then I start to, and then that sticks, right? It gets kind of stuck in my craw. Is that, would that fall into both categories? How, where would you put that? That's a, it's a great question. And I mean, I struggle with a lot of, you know, this same stuff. The idea of, can I, can I trust what I'm hearing the sacred text saying about what God is like? And can I trust these rules about what I'm being told I'm supposed to do. I mean, I know in my own life, some of the worst moral struggles I've had, the, the most painful ones have been ones where I felt like I was being led internally to do something that went against the rules mm. of my religious tradition. Yeah. And then I had, you know, other people in my life, some supported, you know, my moral compass and other people who I think were well-intentioned basically were like, no, that's not what the Bible says. That's bad. You're a sinner. I'm worried about you you're a, a sheep who's straying away. Right. So it's very hard when you're having an internal sense of right or wrong that goes against a sacred text or, or what you've been told God would say. So that's a, that's a great example of a moral struggle that uh, many of us who are, you know, having religious doubts and are trying to figure out what to do with all these ideas are dealing with those very things. 
can I believe a text and in a God where a God would command this? This doesn't go with my own sense of morality. What am I supposed to do with this? So I'm with you, Dan. <laughs> I know. I love that. I think one other application of this can be to people coming out of a more restrictive sexual ethic, like purity culture. And uh, I've already had this conversation with multiple clients, you know, of like, okay, so we agree on what you were told about sex and what was in this sort of cultural zeitgeist of American evangelicalism in the nineties and aughts and to some degree today, but like, what are your values? And do you feel comfortable even decide like identifying them where they overlap, where they, they diverge? Do you feel like you can do that? Do you have permission to, to use the title of the show? And those are great conversations in the therapy room that they it ends up being quite existential because sex is is so uh gets down so deep right into our drives and our partnerships and our closest relationships so yeah that that's another example i would assume yes the the things around sexuality whether it's our own sexual activity and the the confines that are supposed to be around that or sexual orientation gender identity mm-hmm. these are all huge areas for moral struggle where people might have instincts about behaviors that seem like life-giving for them and and are being told that it's bad. And and purity culture is certainly a a massive example of that. Um, I I can't resist recommending, although listeners here probably already are probably already familiar with the book, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Cobes Dumez. I might be mispronouncing her name. Yeah, Dumez. Yeah. Dumez. Just finished it. Uh, Amazing book that uh, really gets at some of these ideas about masculinity, sexuality, how all of this has gotten wrapped up with Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, in a way that, again, might be well-intentioned, like let's get men involved with uh, religion, but can end up getting really toxic. And the purity stuff, a lot of it goes along right along with it. Yeah, so, yeah don't also, get me started. <laughs> I know. That's another episode. I've been enjoying The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which is another kind of popular recent book in that realm. Ken, we've got one more and we have three or four minutes. It's called Interpersonal Spiritual Struggles. It was briefly mentioned earlier in the context of people in our community, but what do you want to say about it? Well, it's it's one of the struggles that often is tied to moral struggles. So all of the issues you're, you're, you're mentioning now, and Julie's been talking about issues of uh, sexual issues and moral conflicts within oneself often spill over then into interpersonal conflicts. In that program, I mentioned Winding Road of college students. They would be bringing in their own moral struggles as they moved to college and had the freedom to either express or not express their own kinds of the impulses. They also had conflicts with their parents who clearly wanted them to, to live a certain kind of lifestyle. And they had to then face not only their own within moral conflicts, but the kinds of struggles with their parents around it. These struggles are among the most painful, I think, when when they're encountered and they can be a source of such tremendous uh, conflict and bitterness and resentment and then lead to rifts. I mean, we're and it's because we're talking about, again, the deepest issues. And so we're talking about sacred matters. And these conflicts then aren't just things that we disagree about. Again, take home point from our our book with this is that we really need to find ways to be able to talk about these fundamental uh, struggles between people. And there's a real communication gap when when it comes to trying to just open the conversation 
within families, I think between adolescents and their parents, who talks about religious spiritual issues at the dinner table? And what do you do if your adolescent child starts raising questions and doubts about these matters? Can parents tolerate that? Can they accept it? Can they share their own spiritual struggles over the years? Or is it shut down? And I think one of the reasons many adolescents will eventually leave completely, and I think you were alluding to it earlier, is there's no place to go with the questions and the doubts. It's either or. Either you decide to accept what your parents are telling you to do or you leave. And there's no place to be in that in-between space of sorting it out. I'm still thinking it through. I'm trying to figure it out for myself as I move into adulthood. And so a therapist can facilitate this process, too, of not only working with clients individually and their own kind of intrapsychic struggles, but bringing people into the room, finding ways to help people talk about it. Interfaith marriage is another really good example where how do you sort out those really potentially terribly divisive issues? How do you get people to talk about matters of faith in a way that's not kind of doomed to a terrible conflict and, and divisiveness? You guys, I mean, we're talking about hard things here. And I, I imagine, first of all, I bet there's not a single listener to my podcast like who's listened to more than one episode, let's say, that has not experienced at least one of these categories of spiritual struggle in their life. Otherwise they wouldn't find this podcast interesting. So I know you're, you have spoken directly to literally everyone who's listening. So thank you for that. And thank you for your work. I know that it's a dark topic. It might just be my own kind of vocational calling into this dark work with people that makes me feel this way, but I feel hopeful right now. I feel tremendously hopeful right now. Like, I feel like you've just helped me realize or remind me just how many directions there are to go with this stuff toward healing, toward creating communities that can handle this stuff better in individual work as a therapist, but also like former guest Mark Karras, who wrote a book called Religious Refugees and is a psychologist in California. He talks about an unholy huddle that you have if you're going through a a faith deconstruction type journey. I told him he should have called it a holy huddle, uh, you know, because that is kind of holy, right? Like, but like people that you can process it with. So we're not just talking about therapists here. Anybody can do this with the people in their lives. They can create a space over a board game, over a meal or beers, over a coffee, where they just make space to listen or ask a friend to make space for them to listen and talk through this stuff. And so I'm feeling tremendous hope, even though it's a super dark topic. And so I'm very grateful to you guys for your work and, of course, for talking with me this morning. It's been wonderful, Dan. Thank you so much. And I would also love to keep talking for like several more hours about this and listening, listening to what you guys have to say. So it's been a treat. Thanks so much for having us here. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Julie. It's really been a pleasure to be able to uh, work with Julie on this, this project and this research together. It's been a real, a real treat for us, for me. Huge thanks to Julie and Ken for joining me today. Oh my gosh, so much good shit in there. I can't believe it. I am stoked right now. 
And I apologize if you're not feeling stoked, if you're feeling kind of down, but I don't know. This is, you know, it's personal, but this is the world I want to dive straight into. And I'm feeling really inspired by that conversation and uh, just all the work, all the great work that's being done around these topics. Uh, thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing our conversation. He's available for more work and his email is in the show notes. You can become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, five bucks a month, two exclusive episodes per month and access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. And we will see you in a couple weeks for another episode. <laughs>